Chapter 14 The Grand Miracle A light that shone from behind the sun, the sun was not so fierce as to pierce where that light could. Charles Williams The central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the Incarnation. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary interferences just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The fitness, and therefore credibility, of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. The fitness or credibility of the grand miracle itself cannot, obviously, be judged by the same standard. And let us admit at once that it is very difficult to find a standard by which it can be judged. If the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. Since it happened only once, it is by Hume's standards infinitely improbable. But then the whole history of the earth has also only happened once. Is it therefore incredible? Hence the difficulty, which weighs upon Christian and atheist alike, of estimating the probability of the Incarnation. It is like asking whether the existence of nature herself is intrinsically probable. That is why it is easier to argue on historical grounds that the Incarnation actually occurred than to show, on philosophical grounds, the probability of its occurrence. The historical difficulty of giving for the life, sayings, and influence of Jesus any explanation that is not harder than the Christian explanation is very great. The discrepancy between the depth and sanity and, let me add, shrewdness of his moral teaching and the rampant megalomania which must lie behind his theological teaching unless he is indeed God has never been satisfactorily got over. Hence the non-Christian hypotheses succeed one another with the restless fertility of bewilderment. Today we are asked to regard all the theological elements as later accretions to the story of a historical and merely human Jesus. Yesterday we were asked to believe that the whole thing began with vegetation myths and mystery religions, and that the pseudo-historical man was only fadged up at a later date. But this historical inquiry is outside the scope of my book. Since the Incarnation, if it is a fact, holds this central position, and since we are assuming that we do not yet know it to have happened on historical grounds, we are in a position which may be illustrated by the following analogy. Let us suppose we possess parts of a novel or a symphony. Someone now brings us a newly discovered piece of manuscript and says, This is the missing part of the work. This is the chapter on which the whole plot of the novel really turned. This is the main theme of the symphony. Our business would be to see whether the new passage, if admitted to the central place which the discoverer claimed for it, did actually illuminate all the parts we had already seen and pull them together. Nor should we be likely to go very far wrong. The new passage, if spurious, however attractive it looked at the first glance, would become harder and harder to reconcile with the rest of the work the longer we considered the matter. But if it were genuine, then at every fresh hearing of the music, or every fresh reading of the book, we should find it settling down, making itself more at home, and eliciting significance from all sorts of details in the whole work which we had hitherto neglected. Even though the new central chapter, or main theme, contained great difficulties in itself, we should still think it genuine, provided that it continually removed difficulties elsewhere. Something like this we must do with the doctrine of the Incarnation. 
Here, instead of a symphony or a novel, we have the whole mass of our knowledge. The credibility will depend on the extent to which the doctrine, if accepted, can illuminate and integrate that whole mass. It is much less important that the doctrine itself should be fully comprehensible. We believe that the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, not because we can clearly see the sun, in fact we cannot, but because we can see everything else. The first difficulty that occurs to any critic of the doctrine lies in the very center of it. What can be meant by God becoming man? In what sense is it conceivable that eternal, self-existent spirit, basic facthood, should be so combined with a natural human organism as to make one person? And this would be a fatal stumbling block if we had not already discovered that in every human being, a wholly supernatural entity is thus united with a part of nature, so united that the composite creature calls itself I and me. I am not, of course, suggesting that what happened when God became man was simply another instance of this process. In other men, a supernatural creature thus becomes, in union with a natural creature, one human being. In Jesus, it is held, the supernatural creator himself did so. I do not think anything we can do will enable us to imagine the mode of consciousness of the incarnate God. That is where the doctrine is not fully comprehensible. But the difficulty which we felt in the mere idea of the supernatural descending into the natural is apparently non-existent, or is at least overcome, in the person of every man. If we did not know by experience what it feels like to be a rational animal, how all these natural facts, all this biochemistry and instinctive affection or repulsion and sensuous perception can become the medium of rational thought and moral will which understand necessary relations and acknowledge modes of behavior as universally binding, we could not conceive, much less imagine, the thing happening. The discrepancy between a movement of atoms in an astronomer's cortex and his understanding that there must be a still unobserved planet beyond Uranus is already so immense that the incarnation of God himself is, in one sense, scarcely more startling. We cannot conceive how the divine spirit dwelled within the created and human spirit of Jesus, but neither can we conceive how his human spirit, or that of any man, dwells within his natural organism. What we can understand, if the Christian doctrine is true, is that our own composite existence is not the sheer anomaly it might seem to be, but a faint image of the divine incarnation itself, the same theme in a very minor key. We can understand that if God so descends into a human spirit, and human spirit so descends into nature, and our thoughts into our senses and passions, and if adult minds, but only the best of them, can descend into sympathy with children, and men into sympathy with beasts, then everything hangs together, and the total reality, both natural and supernatural, in which we are living, is more multifariously and subtly harmonious than we had suspected. We catch sight of a new key principle, the power of the higher, just insofar as it is truly higher, to come down, the power of the greater to include the less. Thus, solid bodies exemplify many truths of plane geometry, but plane figures no truths of solid geometry. Many inorganic propositions are true of organisms, but no organic propositions are true of minerals. Montaigne became kittenish with his kitten, but she never talked philosophy to him. Everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being, into time and space, down into humanity. Down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again, and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, 
first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below, where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. In this descent and reascent, everyone will recognize a familiar pattern, a thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, and deathlike. It must fall into the ground. Thence the new life reascends. It is the pattern of all animal generation too. There is descent from the full and perfect organisms into the spermatozoan and ovum, and in the dark womb a life at first inferior in kind to that of the species which is being reproduced, then the slow ascent to the perfect embryo, to the living conscious baby, and finally to the adult. So it is also in our moral and emotional life. The first innocent and spontaneous desires have to submit to the death-like process of control or total denial. But from that there is a reascent to fully formed character in which the strength of the original material all operates but in a new way. Death and rebirth. Go down to go up. It is a key principle. Through this bottleneck, this belittlement, the high road nearly always lies. The doctrine of the Incarnation, if accepted, puts this principle even more emphatically at the center. The pattern is there in nature because it was first there in God. All the instances of it which I have mentioned turn out to be but transpositions of the divine theme into a minor key. I am not now referring simply to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The total pattern, of which they are only the turning point, is the real death and rebirth. For certainly no seed ever fell from so fair a tree into so dark and cold a soil as would furnish more than a faint analogy to this huge descent and reascension in which God dredged the salt and oozy bottom of creation. From this point of view, the Christian doctrine makes itself so quickly at home amid the deepest apprehensions of reality which we have from other sources that doubt may spring up in a new direction. Is it not fitting in too well, so well that it must have come into men's minds from seeing this pattern elsewhere, particularly in the annual death and resurrection of the corn? For there have, of course, been many religions in which that annual drama, so important for the life of the tribe, was almost admittedly the central theme, and the deity, Adonis, Osiris, or another, almost undisguisedly a personification of the corn, a corn king who died and rose again each year. Is not Christ simply another corn king? Now, this brings us to the oddest thing about Christianity. In a sense, the view which I have just described is actually true. From a certain point of view, Christ is the same sort of thing as Adonis or Osiris, always, of course, waving the fact that they lived nobody knows where or when, while he was executed by a Roman magistrate we know in a year which can be roughly dated. And that is just the puzzle. If Christianity is a religion of that kind, why is the analogy of the seed falling into the ground so seldom mentioned, twice only, if I mistake not, in the New Testament? Corn religions are popular and respectable. If that is what the first Christian teachers were putting across, what motive could they have for concealing the fact? The impression they make is that of men who simply don't know how close they are to corn religions, men who simply overlook the rich sources of relevant imagery and association which they must have been on the verge of tapping at every moment. If you say they suppressed it because they were Jews, that only raises the puzzle in a new form. Why should the only religion of a dying God, which has actually survived and risen to unexampled spiritual heights, occur precisely among those people to whom, and to whom almost alone, the whole circle of ideas that belong to the dying God was foreign? I myself, who first seriously read the New Testament when I was, imaginatively and poetically, all agog for the death and rebirth pattern, and anxious to meet a new corn king, 
was chilled and puzzled by the almost total absence of such ideas in the Christian documents. One moment particularly stood out. A dying god, the only dying god who might possibly be historical, holds bread, that is, corn, in his hand and says, This is my body. Surely here, even if nowhere else, or surely if not here, at least in the earliest comments on this passage and through all later devotional usage in ever-swelling volume, the truth must come out. The connection between this and the annual drama of the crops must be made. But it is not. It is there for me. There is no sign that it was there for the disciples, or, humanly speaking, for Christ himself. It is almost as if he didn't realize what he had said. The records, in fact, show us a person who enacts the part of the dying God, but whose thoughts and words remain quite outside the circle of religious ideas to which the dying God belongs. The very thing which the nature religions are all about seems to have really happened once, but it happened in a circle where no trace of nature religion was present. It is as if you met the sea serpent and found that it disbelieved in sea serpents, as if history recorded a man who had done all the things attributed to Sir Lancelot, but who had himself never apparently heard of chivalry. There is, however, one hypothesis which, if accepted, makes everything easy and coherent. The Christians are not claiming that simply God was incarnate in Jesus. They are claiming that the one true God is he whom the Jews worshipped as Yahweh, and that it is he who has descended. Now the double character of Yahweh is this. On the one hand, he is the God of nature, her glad creator. It is he who sends rain into the furrows, till the valley stands so thick with corn that they laugh and sing. The trees of the wood rejoice before him, and his voice causes the wild deer to bring forth their young. He is the God of wheat and wine and oil. In that respect, he is constantly doing all the things that nature gods do. He is Bacchus, Venus, Ceres, all rolled into one. There is no trace in Judaism of the idea found in some pessimistic and pantheistic religions that nature is some kind of illusion or disaster, that finite existence is in itself an evil, and that the cure lies in the relapse of all things into God. Compared with such anti-natural conceptions, Yahweh might almost be mistaken for a nature god. On the other hand, Yahweh is clearly not a nature god. He does not die and come to life each year as a true corn king should. He may give wine and fertility, but must not be worshipped with bacchanalian or aphrodisiac rites. He is not the soul of nature, nor any part of nature. He inhabits eternity. He dwells in the high and holy place. Heaven is his throne, not his vehicle. Earth is his footstool, not his vesture. One day he will dismantle both and make a new heaven and earth. He is not to be identified even with the divine spark in man. He is God and not man. His thoughts are not our thoughts. All our righteousness is filthy rags. His appearance to Ezekiel is attended with imagery that does not borrow from nature, but, it is a mystery too seldom noticed, from those machines which men were to make centuries after Ezekiel's death. The prophet saw something suspiciously like a dynamo. Yahweh is neither the soul of nature nor her enemy. She is neither his body nor a declension and falling away from him. She is his creature. He is not a nature god, but the god of nature, her inventor, maker, owner, and controller. To everyone who reads this book, the conception has been familiar from childhood. We therefore easily think it is the most ordinary conception in the world. If people are going to believe in a god at all, we ask, what other kind would they believe in? But the answer of history is, almost any other kind. We mistake our privileges for our instincts just as one meets ladies who believe their own refined manners to be natural to them. They don't remember being taught. Now, if there is such a God, and if he descends to rise again, then we can understand why Christ is at once so like the corn king and so silent about him. He is like the corn king because the corn king is a portrait of him. The similarity is not in the least unreal or accidental. For the corn king is derived, through human imagination, from the facts of nature, 
and the facts of nature from her creator. The death and rebirth pattern is in her because it was first in him. On the other hand, elements of nature religion are strikingly absent from the teaching of Jesus and from the Judaic preparation which led up to it, precisely because in them nature's original is manifesting itself. In them you have from the very outset got in behind nature religion and behind nature herself. Where the real God is present, the shadows of that God do not appear. That which the shadows resembled does. The Hebrews throughout their history were being constantly headed off from the worship of nature gods, not because the nature gods were in all respects unlike the god of nature, but because, at best, they were merely like, and it was the destiny of that nation to be turned away from likenesses to the thing itself. The mention of that nation turns our attention to one of those features in the Christian story which is repulsive to the modern mind. To be quite frank, we do not at all like the idea of a chosen people. Democrats by birth and education, we should prefer to think that all nations and individuals start level in the search for God, or even that all religions are equally true. It must be admitted at once that Christianity makes no concessions to this point of view. It does not tell of a human search for God at all, but of something done by God for, to, and about man. And the way in which it is done is selective, undemocratic, to the highest degree. After the knowledge of God had been universally lost or obscured, one man from the whole earth, Abraham, is picked out. He is separated, miserably enough, we may suppose, from his natural surroundings, sent into a strange country, and made the ancestor of a nation who are to carry the knowledge of the true God. Within this nation there is further selection. Some die in the desert, some remain behind in Babylon. There is further selection still. The process grows narrower and narrower, sharpens at last into one small bright point like the head of a spear. It is a Jewish girl at her prayers. All humanity, so far as concerns its redemption, has narrowed to that. Such a process is very unlike what modern feeling demands, but it is startlingly like what nature habitually does. Selectiveness, and with it, we must allow, enormous wastage, is her method. Out of enormous space, a very small portion is occupied by matter at all. Of all the stars, perhaps very few, perhaps only one, have planets. Of the planets in our own system, probably only one supports organic life. In the transmission of organic life, countless seeds and spermatozoa are emitted. Some few are selected for the distinction of fertility. Among the species, only one is rational. Within that species, only a few attain excellence of beauty, strength, or intelligence. At this point, we come perilously near the argument of Butler's famous analogy. I say perilously because the argument of that book very nearly admits parodying in the form, you say that the behavior attributed to the Christian God is both wicked and foolish, but it is no less likely to be true on that account, for I can show that nature, which he created, behaves just as badly. To which the atheist will answer, and the nearer he is to Christ in his heart, the more certainly he will do so. If there is a God like that, I despise and defy him. But I am not saying that nature, as we now know her, is good. That is a point we must return to in a moment. Nor am I saying that a God whose actions were no better than nature's would be a proper object of worship for any honest man. The point is a little finer than that. This selective or undemocratic quality in nature, at least in so far as it affects human life, is neither good nor evil. According as spirit exploits or fails to exploit this natural situation, it gives rise to one or the other. It permits, on the one hand, ruthless competition, arrogance, and envy. It permits, on the other, modesty and, one of our greatest pleasures, admiration. A world in which I was really, and not merely by a useful legal fiction, as good as everyone else, in which I never looked up to anyone wiser or cleverer or braver or more learned than I, would be insufferable. The very fans of the cinema stars and the famous footballers know better than to desire that. 
What the Christian story does is not to instate on the divine level a cruelty and wastefulness which have already disgusted us on the natural, but to show us in God's act, working neither cruelly nor wastefully, the same principle which is in nature also, though down there it works sometimes in one way and sometimes in the other. It illuminates the natural scene by suggesting that a principle which at first looked meaningless may yet be derived from a principle which is good and fair, may indeed be a depraved and blurred copy of it, the pathological form which it would take in a spoiled nature. For when we look into the selectiveness which the Christians attribute to God, we find in it none of that favoritism which we were afraid of. The chosen people are chosen not for their own sake, certainly not for their own honor or pleasure, but for the sake of the unchosen. Abraham is told that in his seed, the chosen nation, all nations shall be blessed. That nation has been chosen to bear a heavy burden. Their sufferings are great, but, as Isaiah recognized, their sufferings heal others. On the finely selected woman falls the utmost depth of maternal anguish. Her son, the incarnate God, is a man of sorrows. The one man into whom deity descended, the one man who can be lawfully adored, is preeminent for suffering. But, you will ask, does this much mend matters? Is not this still injustice, though now the other way round? Where at the first glance we accused God of undue favor to his chosen, we are now tempted to accuse him of undue disfavor. The attempt to keep up both charges at the same time had better be dropped. And certainly we have here come to a principle very deep-rooted in Christianity, what may be called the principle of vicariousness. The sinless man suffers for the sinful, and, in their degree, all good men for all bad men. And this vicariousness, no less than death and rebirth or selectiveness, is also a characteristic of nature. Self-sufficiency, living on one's own resources, is a thing impossible in her realm. Everything is indebted to everything else, sacrificed to everything else, dependent on everything else. And here, too, we must recognize that the principle is in itself neither good nor bad. The cat lives on the mouse in a way I think bad. The bees and the flowers live on one another in a more pleasing manner. In social life, without vicariousness, there would be no exploitation or oppression, but also no kindness or gratitude. It is a fountain both of love and hatred, both of misery and happiness. When we have understood this, we shall no longer think that the depraved examples of vicariousness in nature forbid us to suppose that the principle itself is of divine origin. At this point, it may be well to take a backward glance and notice how the doctrine of the Incarnation is already acting on the rest of our knowledge. We have already brought it into contact with four other principles, the composite nature of man, the pattern of descent and reascension, selectiveness, and vicariousness. The first may be called a fact about the frontier between nature and supernature. The other three are characteristics of nature herself. Now, most religions, when brought face to face with the facts of nature, either simply reaffirm them, give them, just as they stand, a transcendent prestige, or else simply negate them, promise us release from such facts and from nature altogether. The nature religions take the first line, they sanctify our agricultural concerns and indeed our whole biological life. We get really drunk in the worship of Dionysus and lie with real women in the temple of the fertility goddess. In life force worship, which is the modern and western type of nature religion, we take over the existing trend towards development or increasing complexity in organic, social, and industrial life and make it a god. The anti-natural or pessimistic religions, which are more civilized and sensitive, such as Buddhism or higher Hinduism, tell us that nature is evil and illusory, that there is an escape from this incessant change, this furnace of striving and desire. Neither the one nor the other sets the facts of nature in a new light. The nature religions merely reinforce that view of nature which we spontaneously adopt in our moments of rude health and cheerful brutality. The anti-natural religions do the same for the view we take in moments of compassion, fastidiousness, or lassitude. The Christian doctrine does neither of these things. 
If any man approaches it with the idea that because Yahweh is the God of fertility, our lasciviousness is going to be authorized, or that the selectiveness and vicariousness of God's method will excuse us for imitating, as heroes, supermen, or social parasites, the lower selectiveness and vicariousness of nature, he will be stunned and repelled by the inflexible Christian demand for chastity, humility, mercy, and justice. On the other hand, if we come to it regarding the death which precedes every rebirth, or the fact of inequality, or our dependence on others and their dependence on us as the mere odious necessities of an evil cosmos, and hoping to be livered into transparent and enlightened spirituality where all these things just vanish, we shall be equally disappointed. We shall be told that, in one sense, and despite enormous differences, it is the same all the way up, that hierarchical inequality, the need for self-surrender, the willing sacrifice of self to others, and the thankful and loving but unashamed acceptance of others' sacrifice to us hold sway in the realm beyond nature. It is indeed only love that makes the difference. All those very same principles which are evil in the world of selfishness and necessity are good in the world of love and understanding. Thus, as we accept this doctrine of the higher world, we make new discoveries about the lower world. It is from that hill that we first really understand the landscape of this valley. Here at last we find, as we do not find either in the nature religions or in the religions that deny nature, a real illumination. Nature is being lit up by a light from beyond nature. Someone is speaking who knows more about her than can be known from inside her. Throughout this doctrine it is of course implied that nature is infected with evil. Those great key principles which exist as modes of goodness in the divine life take on in her operations not merely a less perfect form that we should on any view expect, but forms which I have been driven to describe as morbid or depraved. And this depravity could not be totally removed without the drastic remaking of nature. Complete human virtue would indeed banish from human life all the evils that now arise in it from vicariousness and selectiveness and retain only the good. But the wastefulness and painfulness of non-human nature would remain, and would, of course, continue to infect human life in the form of disease. And the destiny which Christianity promises to man clearly involves a redemption or remaking of nature, which could not stop at man, or even at this planet. We are told that the whole creation is in travail, and that man's rebirth will be the signal for hers. This gives rise to several problems, the discussion of which puts the whole doctrine of the Incarnation in a clearer light. In the first place, we ask how nature created by a good God comes to be in this condition, by which question we may mean either how she comes to be imperfect, to leave room for improvement, as the schoolmasters say in their reports, or else how she comes to be positively depraved. If we ask the question in the first sense, the Christian answer, I think, is that God, from the first, created her such as to reach her perfection by a process in time. He made an earth at first without form and void, and brought it by degrees to its perfection. In this, as elsewhere, we see the familiar pattern, descent from God to the formless earth, and reascent from the formless to the finished. In that sense, a certain degree of evolutionism, or developmentalism, is inherent in Christianity. So much for nature's imperfection. Her positive depravity calls for a very different explanation. According to the Christians, this is all due to sin, the sin both of men and of powerful, non-human beings, supernatural but created. The unpopularity of this doctrine arises from the widespread naturalism of our age, the belief that nothing but nature exists, and that if anything else did, she is protected from it by a Maginot line, and will disappear as this error is corrected. To be sure, the morbid inquisitiveness about such beings which led our ancestors to a pseudoscience of demonology is to be sternly discouraged. Our attitude should be that of the sensible citizen in wartime who believes that there are enemy spies in our midst, but disbelieves nearly every particular spy story. We must limit ourselves to the general statement that beings in a different and higher nature, which is partially interlocked with ours, have, like men, fallen and have tampered with things inside our frontier. 
The doctrine, besides proving itself fruitful of good in each man's spiritual life, helps to protect us from shallowly optimistic or pessimistic views of nature. To call her either good or evil is boy's philosophy. We find ourselves in a world of transporting pleasures, ravishing beauties, and tantalizing possibilities, but all constantly being destroyed, all coming to nothing. Nature has all the air of a good thing spoiled. The sin, both of men and of angels, was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will. Thus surrendering a portion of his omnipotence, it is again a death-like or descending movement, because he saw that from a world of free creatures, even though they fell, he could work out, and this is the reascent, a deeper happiness and a fuller splendor than any world of automata would admit. Another question that arises is this. If the redemption of man is the beginning of nature's redemption as a whole, must we then conclude, after all, that man is the most important thing in nature? If I had to answer yes to this question, I should not be embarrassed. Supposing man to be the only rational animal in the universe, then, as has been shown, his small size and the small size of the globe he inhabits would not make it ridiculous to regard him as the hero of the cosmic drama. Jack, after all, is the smallest character in Jack the Giant Killer. Nor do I think it in the least improbable that man is in fact the only rational creature in the spatio-temporal nature. That is just the sort of lonely preeminence, just the disproportion between picture and frame, which all that I know of nature's selectiveness would lead me to anticipate. But I do not need to assume that it actually exists. Let man be only one among a myriad of rational species, and let him be the only one that has fallen. Because he has fallen, for him God does the great deed, just as in the parable it is the one lost sheep for whom the shepherd hunts. Let man's preeminence or solitude be one not of superiority, but of misery and evil. Then, all the more, man will be the very species into which mercy will descend. For this prodigal, the fatted calf, or, to speak more suitably, the eternal lamb, is killed. But once the Son of God, drawn hither not by our merits but by our unworthiness, has put on human nature, then our species, whatever it may have been before, does become, in one sense, the central fact in all nature. Our species, rising after its long descent, will drag all nature up with it, because in our species the Lord of nature is now included. And it would be all of a piece with what we already know if ninety and nine righteous races inhabiting distant planets that circle distant suns, and needing no redemption on their own account, were remade and glorified by the glory which had descended into our race. For God is not merely mending, not simply restoring a status quo. Redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity would have been, more glorious than any unfallen race now is, if at this moment the night sky conceals any such. The greater the sin, the greater the mercy. The deeper the death, the brighter the rebirth. And this superadded glory will, with true vicariousness, exalt all creatures, and those who have never fallen will thus bless Adam's fall. I write so far on the assumption that the Incarnation was occasioned only by the Fall. Another view has, of course, been sometimes held by Christians. According to it, the descent of God into nature was not in itself occasioned by sin. It would have occurred for glorification and perfection even if it had not been required for redemption. Its attendant circumstances would have been very different. The divine humility would not have been a divine humiliation. The sorrows, the gall and vinegar, the crown of thorns and the cross would have been absent. If this view is taken, then clearly the Incarnation, wherever and however it occurred, would always have been the beginning of nature's rebirth. The fact that it has occurred in the human species, summoned thither by that strong incantation of misery and abjection which love has made himself unable to resist, would not deprive it of its universal significance. This doctrine of a universal redemption spreading outwards from the redemption of man, mythological as it will seem to modern minds, is in reality far more philosophical than any theory which holds that God, having once entered nature, should leave her, and leave her substantially unchanged, or that the glorification of one creature could be realized without the glorification of the whole system. God never undoes anything but evil, never does good to undo it again. 
The union between God and nature in the person of Christ admits no divorce. He will not go out of nature again, and she must be glorified in all ways which this miraculous union demands. When spring comes, it leaves no corner of the land untouched. Even a pebble dropped in a pond sends circles to the margin. The question we want to ask about man's central position in this drama is really on a level with the disciples' question, which of them was the greatest? It is the sort of question which God does not answer. If from man's point of view the recreation of non-human and even inanimate nature appears a mere byproduct of his own redemption, then equally from some remote non-human point of view man's redemption may seem merely the preliminary to this more widely diffused springtime, and the very permission of man's fall may be supposed to have had that larger end in view. Both attitudes will be right if they will consent to drop the words mere and merely. Where a God who is totally purposive and totally foreseeing acts upon a nature which is totally interlocked, there can be no accidents or loose ends, nothing whatever of which we can safely use the word merely. Nothing is merely a byproduct of anything else. All results are intended from the first. What is subservient from one point of view is the main purpose from another. No thing or event is first or highest in a sense which forbids it to be also last and lowest. The partner who bows to man in one movement of the dance receives man's reverences in another. To be high or central means to abdicate continually. To be low means to be raised. All good masters are servants. God washes the feet of men. The concepts we usually bring to the consideration of such matters are miserably political and prosaic. We think of flat repetitive equality and arbitrary privilege as the only two alternatives, thus missing all the overtones, the counterpoint, the vibrant sensitiveness, the inter-inanimations of reality. For this reason, I do not think it at all likely that there have been, as Alice Maynell suggested in an interesting poem, many incarnations to redeem many different kinds of creature. One sense of style, of the divine idiom, rejects it. The suggestion of mass production and of waiting cues comes from a level of thought which is here hopelessly inadequate. If other natural creatures than man have sinned, we must believe that they are redeemed. But God's incarnation as man will be one unique act in the drama of total redemption, and other species will have witnessed wholly different acts, each equally unique, equally necessary, and differently necessary to the whole process, and each, from a certain point of view, justifiably regarded as the great scene of the play. To those who live in Act 2, Act 3 looks like an epilogue. To those who live in Act 3, Act 2 looks like a prologue. And both are right until they add the fatal word merely, or else try to avoid it by the dullard supposition that both acts are the same. It ought to be noticed at this stage that the Christian doctrine, if accepted, involves a particular view of death. There are two attitudes towards death which the human mind naturally adopts. One is the lofty view, which reached its greatest intensity among the Stoics, that death doesn't matter, that it is kind nature's signal for retreat, and that we ought to regard it with indifference. The other is the natural point of view, implicit in nearly all private conversations on the subject, and in much modern thought about the survival of the human species, that death is the greatest of all evils. Hobbes is perhaps the only philosopher who erected a system on this basis. The first idea simply negates, the second simply affirms, our instinct for self-preservation. Neither throws any new light on nature, and Christianity countenances neither. Its doctrine is subtler. On the one hand, death is the triumph of Satan, the punishment of the fall and the last enemy. Christ shed tears at the grave of Lazarus, and sweated blood in Gethsemane. The life of lives that was in him detested this penal obscenity not less than we do, but more. On the other hand, only he who loses his life will save it. We are baptized into the death of Christ, and it is the remedy for the fall. Death is, in fact, what some modern people call ambivalent. It is Satan's great weapon, and also God's great weapon. It is holy and unholy, our supreme disgrace and our only hope, the thing Christ came to conquer, and the means by which he conquered. To penetrate the whole of this mystery is, of course, far beyond my intention. 
If the pattern of descent and reascent is, as looks not unlikely, the very formula of reality, then in the mystery of death, the secret of secrets lies hid. But something must be said in order to put the grand miracle in its proper light. We need not discuss death on the highest level of all. The mystical slaying of the lamb before the foundation of the world is above our speculations. Nor need we consider death on the lowest level. The death of organisms, which are nothing more than organisms, which have developed no personality, does not concern us. Of it, we may truly say, as some spiritually-minded people would have us say of human death, that it doesn't matter. But the startling Christian doctrine of human death cannot be passed over. Human death, according to the Christians, is a result of human sin. Man, as originally created, was immune from it. Man, when redeemed and recalled to a new life, which will in some undefined sense be a bodily life in the midst of a more organic and more fully obedient nature, will be immune from it again. This doctrine is, of course, simply nonsense if a man is nothing but a natural organism. But if he were, then, as we have seen, all thoughts would be equally nonsensical, for all would have irrational causes. Man must therefore be a composite being, a natural organism tenanted by, or in a state of symbiosis with, a supernatural spirit. The Christian doctrine, startling as it must seem to those who have not fully cleared their minds of naturalism, states that the relations which we now observe between that spirit and that organism are abnormal or pathological ones. At present, spirit can retain its foothold against the incessant counterattacks of nature, both physiological and psychological, only by perpetual vigilance, and physiological nature always defeats it in the end. Sooner or later, it becomes unable to resist the disintegrating processes at work in the body, and death ensues. A little later, the natural organism, for it does not long enjoy its triumph, is similarly conquered by merely physical nature and returns to the inorganic. But on the Christian view, this was not always so. The spirit was once not a garrison maintaining its post with difficulty in a hostile nature, but was fully at home with its organism, like a king in his own country or a rider on his own horse, or better still, as the human part of a centaur was at home with the equine part. Where spirit's power over the organism was complete and unresisted, death would never occur. No doubt, spirit's permanent triumph over natural forces, which, if left to themselves, would kill the organism, would involve a continued miracle, but only the same sort of miracle which occurs every day. For whenever we think rationally, we are, by direct spiritual power, forcing certain atoms in our brain and certain psychological tendencies in our natural soul to do what they never would have done if left to nature. The Christian doctrine would be fantastic only if the present frontier situation between spirit and nature in each human being were so intelligible and self-explanatory that we just saw it to be the only one that could ever have existed. But is it? In reality, the frontier situation is so odd that nothing but custom could make it seem natural, and nothing but the Christian doctrine can make it fully intelligible. There is certainly a state of war, but not a war of mutual destruction. Nature by dominating spirit wrecks all spiritual activities, Spirit, by dominating nature, confirms and improves natural activities. The brain does not become less a brain by being used for rational thought. The emotions do not become weak or jaded by being organized in the service of a moral will. Indeed, they grow richer and stronger as a beard is strengthened by being shaved or a river is deepened by being banked. The body of the reasonable and virtuous man, other things being equal, is a better body than that of the fool or the debauchee and his sensuous pleasures better simply as sensuous pleasures, for the slaves of the senses, after the first bait, are starved by their masters. Everything happens as if what we saw was not war, but rebellion, that rebellion of the lower against the higher, by which the lower destroys both the higher and itself. And if the present situation is, is one of rebellion, then reason cannot reject, but will rather demand the belief that there was a time before the rebellion broke out, and maybe a time after it has been settled. And if we thus see grounds for believing that the supernatural spirit and the natural organism in man have quarreled, we shall immediately find it confirmed from two quite unexpected quarters. Almost the whole of Christian theology could perhaps be deduced from the two facts, a. that men make coarse jokes, 
and b that they feel the dead to be uncanny. The coarse joke proclaims that we have here an animal which finds its own animality either objectionable or funny. Unless there had been a quarrel between the spirit and the organism, I do not see how this could be. It is the very mark of the two not being at home together. But it is very difficult to imagine such a state of affairs as original, to suppose a creature which from the very first was half shocked and half tickled to death at the mere fact of being the creature it is. I do not perceive that dogs see anything funny about being dogs. I suspect that angels see nothing funny about being angels. Our feeling about the dead is equally odd. It is idle to say that we dislike corpses because we are afraid of ghosts. You might say with equal truth that we fear ghosts because we dislike corpses, for the ghost owes much of its horror to the associated ideas of pallor, decay, coffins, shrouds, and worms. In reality, we hate the division which makes possible the conception of either corpse or ghost. Because the thing ought not to be divided, each of the halves into which it falls by division is detestable. The explanations which naturalism gives, both of bodily shame and of our feeling about the dead, are not satisfactory. It refers us to primitive taboos and superstitions, as if these themselves were not obviously results of the thing to be explained. But once accept the Christian doctrine that man was originally a unity, and that the present division is unnatural, and all the phenomena fall into place. It would be fantastic to suggest that the doctrine was devised to explain our enjoyment of a chapter in Rabelais, a good ghost story, or the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. It does so nonetheless. I ought perhaps to point out that the argument is not in the least affected by the value judgments we make about ghost stories or coarse humor. You may hold that both are bad. You may hold that both, though they result like clothes from the fall, are, like clothes, the proper way to deal with the fall once it has occurred. That while perfected and recreated, man will no longer experience that kind of laughter or that kind of shudder. Yet here and now, not to feel the horror and not to see the joke is to be less than human. But either way, the facts bear witness to our present maladjustment. So much for the sense in which human death is the result of sin and the triumph of Satan. But it is also the means of redemption from sin, God's medicine for man and his weapon against Satan. In a general way, it is not difficult to understand how the same thing can be a masterstroke on the part of one combatant, and also the very means whereby the superior combatant defeats him. Every good general, every good chess player, takes what is precisely the strong point of his opponent's plan and makes it the pivot of his own plan. Take that castle of mine if you insist. It was not my original intention that you should, indeed I thought you would have had more sense, but take it by all means, for now I move thus, and thus, and it is mate in three moves. Something like this must be supposed to have happened about death. Do not say that such metaphors are too trivial to illustrate so high a matter. The unnoticed mechanical and mineral metaphors which, in this age, will dominate our whole minds without being recognized as metaphors at all, the moment we relax our vigilance against them, must be incomparably less adequate. And one can see how it might have happened. The enemy persuades man to rebel against God. Man, by doing so, loses power to control that other rebellion which the enemy now raises in man's organism, both psychical and physical, against man's spirit just as that organism, in its turn, loses power to maintain itself against the rebellion of the inorganic. In that way, Satan produced human death. But when God created man, he gave him such a constitution that, if the highest part of it rebelled against himself, it would be bound to lose control over the lower parts, that is, in the long run, to suffer death. This provision may be regarded equally as a punitive sentence, in the day ye eat of that fruit ye shall die, as a mercy and as a safety device. It is punishment because death, that death of which Martha says to Christ, but, sir, it'll smell, is horror and ignominy. I am not so much afraid of death as ashamed of it, said Sir Thomas Brown. It is mercy because by willing and humble surrender to it, man undoes his act of rebellion and makes even this depraved and monstrous mode of death an instance of that higher and mystical death which is eternally good and a necessary ingredient in the highest life. The readiness is all. 
not, of course, the merely heroic readiness, but that of humility and self-renunciation. Our enemy, so welcomed, becomes our servant. Bodily death, the monster, becomes blessed spiritual death to self, if the spirit so wills, or rather if it allows the spirit of the willingly dying God so to will in it. It is a safety device because, once man has fallen, natural immortality would be the one utterly hopeless destiny for him. Aided to the surrender that he must make by no external necessity of death, free, if you call it freedom, to rivet faster and faster about himself through unending centuries the chains of his own pride and lust and of the nightmare civilizations which these build up in ever-increasing power and complication, he would progress from being merely a fallen man to being a fiend, possibly beyond all modes of redemption. This danger was averted. The sentence that those who ate of the forbidden fruit would be driven away from the tree of life was implicit in the composite nature with which man was created. But to convert this penal death into the means of eternal life, to add to its negative and preventative function a positive and saving function, it was further necessary that death should be accepted. Humanity must embrace death freely, submit to it with total humility, drink it to the dregs, and so convert it into that mystical death which is the secret of life. But only a man who did not need to have been a man at all, unless he had chosen, only one who served in our sad regiment as a volunteer, yet also only one who was perfectly a man, could perform this perfect dying, and thus, which way you put it is unimportant, either defeat death or redeem it. He tasted death on behalf of all others. He is the representative dyer of the universe, and for that very reason, the resurrection and the life. Or conversely, because he truly lives, he truly dies, for that is the very pattern of reality. Because the higher can descend into the lower, he who from all eternity has been incessantly plunging himself into the blessed death of self-surrender to the Father can also most fully descend into the horrible and, for us, involuntary death of the body. Because vicariousness is the very idiom of the reality he has created, his death can become ours. The whole miracle, far from denying what we already know of reality, writes the comment which makes that crabbed text plain, or rather proves itself to be the text on which nature was only the commentary. In science we have been reading only the notes to a poem, in Christianity, we find the poem itself. With this, our sketch of the grand miracle may end. Its credibility does not lie in obviousness. Pessimism, optimism, pantheism, materialism, all have this obvious attraction. Each is confirmed at the first glance by multitudes of facts. Later on, each meets insuperable obstacles. The doctrine of the Incarnation works into our minds quite differently. It digs beneath the surface, works through the rest of our knowledge by unexpected channels, harmonizes best with our deepest apprehensions and our second thoughts, and in union with these undermines our superficial opinions. It has little to say to the man who is still certain that everything is going to the dogs, or that everything is getting better and better, or that everything is God, or that everything is electricity. Its hour comes when these wholesale creeds have begun to fail us. Whether the thing really happened is a historical question, but when you turn to history, you will not demand for it that kind and degree of evidence which you would rightly demand for something intrinsically improbable only that kind and degree which you demand for something which, if accepted, illuminates and orders all other phenomena, explains both our laughter and our logic, our fear of the dead and our knowledge that it is somehow good to die, and which at one stroke covers what multitudes of separate theories will hardly cover for us if this is rejected. <laughs>